Hey, this is episode 16 of the Getting to Ramen podcast, and I'm still Joshua Anderton. So this morning, I spoke with Ben Orenstein from Tuple and Art of Product podcast. This interview is going to be the last of a season that I've been working on. So the last several episodes have been interviews with founders that have experiences that have been specifically interesting to me. So I'm, I was really pumped to get Ben on for, for this kind of finale to this season because uh, he's definitely somebody that I, I admire, I look up to, and his story is, is really interesting. So let's get into it. So about 18 months ago, um, I and my two other co-founders, uh, we all quit our cushy day jobs as software developers and we struck out on our own. And we founded a company called Tuple, and we make a tool for remote pair programming. And it's, it's screen sharing and remote control and video and audio, um, but we've tailored it for programmers, uh, and pe- in particular, people that are writing code at the same time. So we've balanced our trade-offs and added features that are um, focused on that use case. And we launched to our first users uh, January of this year, 2019. Uh, we had a small alpha group of about eight teams, and then uh, since then we've basically gotten steadily more and more open. We've opened the gates a bit more each month or two, uh, and currently we now are like basically launched. Uh, we even have a free trial, and uh, yeah, things have been going really well. The business has grown uh, faster than I thought it would, and I'm having a really fun time running it. Growing faster than expected sounds like a good problem to have. Um how did you validate the idea and, and where did you find those initial um, potential customers? There used to be this great product called Screen Hero that did what Tuple does. Uh, and Slack bought them and ostensibly rolled them into their calls product, but it actually didn't work nearly as well as it used to. And then eventually they, they even completely shut it down. Uh, and so I remember uh, when they shut it down, or at least when they had closed it to new signups, asking uh, other developer friends of mine, like, hey, what are you using now that Screen Hero is gone? And so many people told me, uh, I don't know. I just kind of stopped remote pairing. And so I was like, well, that seems like there was this thing that served this need and people liked it and wanted it. And then it went away. And so surely someone is going to step up and make this. But like three or four years had gone by and no one had. And so we we're like, well, this is I, I just kind of kept staring at this thing and it just kept feeling like an opportunity. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt like I feel like if I don't try this, I'm going to really regret it. Like someone eventually will surely solve this, like you know, address this need, and I'm going to feel kind of you know sad if I if if I haven't at least taken a shot at it. So um, the initial validation was kind of like I wanted it, and my friends kind of wanted it, and then um, I kept going from there. So once we decided to start making this thing, um, I wanted to sort of prove that I could get people to pay for it because Screen Hero was venture backed, and so they, a lot of people never paid for it. It was just sort of a free sort of model. Uh, and so I started with my, basically within my network, I actually started at MicroConf, um, which I imagine some of your listeners might know about, uh, but a conference for sort of bootstrapped software companies or bootstrapped entrepreneurs in general. I would go, uh, basically pitch people uh, who I was friendly with and uh, manage to get people to, to prepay for it. And so I would sell them on like an annual plan. And that seemed to actually go pretty well. And so it, it seemed like, okay, if we can make a thing, so like, and the pitch was kind of like, hey, remember Screen Hero? It's kind of like that is what we're trying to build. And so it was like, in the beginning, it felt like, okay, I think I've pretty much de-risked this. I feel pretty confident that people will pay for a thing that is this dream I'm describing. 
I hope we can make the thing that is the dream. Right. And how many people did you get to pre-buy it? Um, it was, we had about something like a dozen teams in the alpha that I had pre-sold to. It was, it was probably like $8,000 or something in, in sales, somewhere around there. Okay. Okay. Well, and that was going to be my next question is, were you, were you mainly selling to teams or was it individuals? It actually was a mix because we didn't really know who the right customer was going to be. And so I sold some people that were like solo freelancers that wanted to use it with clients. And then I sold some people that were established teams that had like, you know, we have a certain number of developers and we want them to use it with each other. Okay. And did you have a set price initially or were you kind of just asking people what they wanted to pay just to get an idea of what you should charge? Um, I was testing prices constantly. So I, 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 I threw out a, a different price for pretty much every single person I talked to, to sort of see, to get feedback because it turned out there's just a ton of variability in willingness and interest in paying. Uh, so I had people tell me that $200 a year was too much. And then I had people sign up at $800 a year. I think this is actually an important part of our journey was, was just like figuring out where is the intersection of, you know, gets enough people saying yes, but also sort of maximizes people that are going to get a lot of value from it and lets us have customers that are, you know, motivated. Uh, and so I'm really glad that we, we, we didn't have like a posted price. Actually, we still don't even have posted pricing. We're, we're working on our pricing page. Finally, that's been really useful. It's nice to be able to test out different price points, but then also just different offers in general. Like how long is the trial? What does the trial cost? That kind of thing. Okay. And it sounds like you were just selling annual plans at the beginning there. Why is that? Um, I picked annual because it was more of a commitment. Um, so I, I, I did actually, there's sort of two main reasons. One was that, um, we wanted to have enough time to make the product better because we knew that the first release was not going to be amazing. So I wanted to try to recruit a group of people that were interested in helping us make something good. And so I wanted to, I wanted to know that they would be around for a little while so we could take their feedback and roll it into the product and then say, is this right now? Is this better? Uh, so I was, and so I was looking for, um, yeah, like uh, some time. And then also I wanted the people that were kind of diehards. They were, that were like really missing this tool and were really excited by the, the vision that we were painting for them. Uh, and because I thought these first handful of teams will have a lot of impact on where we take the product. And so I want to make sure that they're right teams. And so I intentionally made the offer kind of ridiculous where like people will be like, you want me to pay annually for a thing that doesn't exist that will be released at some point. You don't know when. Uh, and I think I've, I've never seen before. And we'd be like, yep. And so like a lot of people would say no, but occasionally people would say this thing you're building is exactly what I want. I'm, I'm really excited. I want to be one of the first teams. And they would say yes. Wow. Yeah. I kind of want to, uh, stop there for a second. Cause I, I think that, cause I think that's really important. I think most founders don't really think about who those first users are and they're not super intentional about it. It's just kind of like, uh, it, just get anyone into the product and get any sort of feedback, which feels great at the beginning, but it isn't really helpful to the business in the long run. Yeah. I, I think that posture of sort of thinking, I'm going to build something valuable. And so I want to make sure I get the right people using it. I don't just want anybody. I think that's a useful kind of mindset shift. Um, I think it puts you in a slightly better headspace for building something really good and for kind of having respect for your own abilities or something like that. Like I, I and now this is probably something I can say with the luxury of having launched a few things. Like this is not my first product or SaaS app or anything like that. So it's probably easier for me to do having done this before. But I imagine thinking like there are some people that would get a lot of value from this. I want those people as customers. 
as opposed to I want anyone that I can kind of convince to use this. Uh, the customers vary in quality, and I think particularly in the early days, uh, you want the ones that that sort of share your vision and that you like and that you want to interact with and are going to give you useful feedback. That the the, the our earliest customers gave us really amazing feedback and they helped us make a much better product. And if we had kind of just shoveled in as many people as we could that were mildly interested, I don't think we would have had nearly the same amount of personal connection, feedback coming back, quality of feedback. So I'm I'm glad we took that approach. I think more people probably can. In the early days, you want that feedback, I think, a little bit more than just like, oh, another $10 a month account or whatever it is. Another thing that occurred to me is maybe it's just me, but psychologically, it's hard to start things. And so, particularly in the early days, but even now, I would say, I'm sensitive to customer feedback. And when someone doesn't like what we made or it doesn't work for them, like it is not fun. It really sucks. Um, and like, even though like we'll have like a really great week, we'll have like one cancellation that like you know just like wasn't happy with it, and like that's the thing I focus on. And so, I wanted particularly in like the really early days when like we're feeling like very fragile because like we know the product is not very good yet. Um, I wanted to make sure that the people we had were kind of were friendly and helpful, and like we're going to be feel like they were kind of on our side, as opposed to being really harsh critics or like you know very dismissive. I just I knew that would be like really hard for. So I was I was doing it kind of like as like psychological protection, in that like I wanted to make sure like we're surrounded by people that kind of feel like friends at first. Yeah, well, I mean that that totally makes sense, and well, and I guess it's working because you uh, you're growing like crazy. So has there been any major spikes in growth or has it been fairly consistent? It has been fairly steady. So we we initially basically blocked access. So we recruited, you know, hand recruited an alpha and then after that we would invite groups of sort of cohorts of people in and we'd send out a certain number of invites and get a certain number of signups. Um sometime around April, we started making it so that like everyone would get invited pretty pretty quickly, like maybe a few day delay, and then like maybe a couple months ago, the delay became instant. So as soon as you entered your email, you get an invite, and in the next couple weeks, it'll just be like you know click here to start your trial. Um, and so it's funny like we're almost kind of not quite launched in a certain sense, in that like there's still like this like hold on, get your you'll get your invite in a second, um, but. Um, growth has been fairly consistent, except we had we had one big spike um, because um, Slack did us a nice favor and completely removed remote control from Slack calls, which was like kind of the final nail in the, the screen hero coffin. But they just decided like we're getting out of the remote control game entirely, and so they wrote up a help doc on like what do you, what do you do, what do we do now, and like we were one of their uh, options that they recommended. Um, they I think they also sent an email to their customers saying by the way if you want you know if you need remote control here are some options and we were on that list. So when I, I saw that Slack was doing this, I emailed all our customers and said hey this is kind of a big opportunity for us. If you could tweet something in the next day or two saying something nice about us if you've gotten value that would be awesome. And we had a pretty pretty huge outpouring of that and so so we had that was basically our, our best month yet was was then when that happened. Getting back to that that feeling of regret I wanted to avoid. I think that would have been one of those moments where like if I had not started the company and didn't have an answer to this problem um, and saw that announcement from Slack, it would have been, oh man, I would just be able to, I feel like I would picture like, oh, we could have benefited from this so much if I'd actually gone after this. But fortunately, because we had been working and we did have happy customers and all that, we were able to take advantage of it. So you've been working on building an audience for years and uh, you've you've built up this this huge loyal following. How much of the success of Tuple would you attribute to having that audience? It's really kind of impossible to tease out, but I would round it to say a lot, quite a bit. 
um, I think now we are starting to extend beyond my network and people are talking about us independently, uh, people that don't know me. But in the early days, uh, as you'd imagine, it was basically all from people I knew or that, or that knew me, at least. So like from my Twitter following or people that listen to my podcast, even still, the podcast continues to be a big source of new customers for us. Um, people will listen to it for a few months and then be like, oh, like now I need this thing. And then we're, we're very much top of mind. Um, so I think it, it, it was a huge thing in the beginning. It continues to be a big thing. Um, it's just now starting to get outside my network. I think this is all, you know, sort of qualitative. I think this was like a incredibly important part of our success. I think we would be nowhere near where we are today without that big initial push or that, that sort of initial asset to, to use. Um, and I, and I, and I thought of it as kind of like, I have some social capital. So I've been, I've been making good things. I've been trying to be useful on the internet. Uh, I've attracted this audience by teaching mostly. And so now it's like, Hey, by the way, uh, I have this new thing and people sort of assume by default that it's going to be good because the other stuff I made is mostly pretty good. I think that's worth so, so, so much. And so when I talk to people that are starting new things or considering starting new things, that's what I almost always tell them to focus on because weirdly enough for a lot of um, developers, the hard part is not the code. It's actually like, it's, I think it's actually easier to build most products than to build an audience that, that likes and trusts you. And so focus on it. My, my advice is usually to focus on that part and start that way before you need to. I, I wasn't like thinking, Oh, Hey, I, I'm going to need an audience for my product. So I should start doing something useful. I've just been doing it for seven, eight, nine years, uh, conference talks and podcasts and blog posts and you know, everything. Uh, and so it, over time I have sort of earned this hopefully <laughs> i couldn't have just spun this up on a whim like okay now it's time for a company let me go ahead and start being useful but great yeah you could probably get 30 followers this month three months five months whatever uh so recommended i'd imagine your audience is mainly developers were you were you thinking before tuple when you're coming up with an idea were you initially thinking like i'm going to build something for developers or were you were you being that intentional about it yes Extremely. I, I think to not do so would be would have been quite foolish. I wouldn't say it was a hundred percent a requirement, but it was it was very important consideration of what I was going to build. So so I spent time uh, with my uh, co-founders, like thinking like of like brainstorming basically projects, and the ones that stuck were always the ones like okay, and I, I can sell I could sell this to my audience because it's you just can't replicate years of building up trust. So, and to not use that asset would have been, I think, a bad decision. In the beginning, my goal was not to build an audience. Like, I didn't stop and think, hey, who can I, you know, bring into my circle and, um, and get to follow me? It was more that I discovered I really liked teaching. And so I just focused on doing the thing that I liked. And I discovered I really liked podcasting. And so I put out a podcast every week for seven years or something. Um, and I loved giving conference talks. So I applied to give, you know, to do dozens of different talks. I was talking to Paul Jarvis and Paul has a weekly newsletter that he's been writing for, I don't know, forever. And I remember asking him, how do you make yourself stick to that? Like, it would be really hard for me to write a weekly newsletter. He's like, I love it. I, I really enjoy it. It's one of the best parts of my week. I don't have any trouble sticking to it. I, I, I enjoy it quite a bit. And I was like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. Like for me, it's not hard to do a podcast every week. Like it's fun. I enjoy it. I don't feel like it's a slog. And so... I have a theory um, that probably for most people, there's some sort of thing you want to do, you like to do. And so 
I would start with figuring that out. Like, what do you enjoy most? Like, maybe it's blogging, maybe it's podcasting, maybe it's conference talks, maybe it's workshops, maybe it's webinars. Like, whatever that might be, uh, give give a handful of things a shot and see what what seems to work for you. Because I think the hard part in all this is that you have to do it for a long time. Like, all the best things in life are hidden behind consistent bouts of effort over long periods. None of the really good stuff comes fast. And so the most important component is your ability to stick to it for a long time. So start with that, figure out what's kind of fun. And then step three, four, five is like, okay, now what can I sell to this audience? Wow. Um, yeah, I, I think that in this day and age with all of the different opportunities, the different mediums for having those outlets, um, there's, you can blog or you can have a podcast or you can be doing weekly videos or you can, there's, there's just so many options. Um, anyone, everyone should be able to find the, that thing that works for them. Uh, but let's, let's kind of, let's imagine for a second, go back before Tuple, if you didn't have that audience and you were starting from scratch, how would you have done it? Um, well, with the knowledge that I'm doing it on hard mode and that I'm basically, uh, so I, we've been fortunate that we were able to start and work on this full time and get to ramen profitable before we ran out of money. And that I think is hard to do. That's very hard to do. I think, um, I think some of that was previous experience, but I think a lot of that was the fact that we started with a pretty big audience. And so I could find paying customers pretty quickly. Um, so I would, the first thing I would kind of do is temper expectations and realize that if you want to do that sort of like go full time, go all in, jump out the plane, you probably need the audience. So if I didn't have the audience, I think I probably would have tried a slower, like expect, like set my expectations that this is going to grow slowly for a long time because I'm basically trying to build two things now, which is a group of people that like and trust me and a product. I probably would have had to start sort of working on both those things part time. Um, it really comes down to kind of what I touched on before, which is like, what do you, what can you stick with for three years, five years, whatever it is. Uh, and that's different for everybody. Uh, for me, again, I love teaching. So I would find ways to, to work on teaching people that I thought would be good customers for the product that I was also building on the side. You've got customers in Tuple now. You've got people using it. How do you filter through feedback to decide what to build next? Do you get a lot of feature requests? There's a pretty steady drip of incoming feedback. So we explicitly prompt people for it during their usage of the, of the product. Okay, so do you actually reach out at certain touch points and ask for feedback then? Uh, we send everyone an email something like 10 days into their their first use of it and ask them like if there's one thing we could improve, what would it be? Uh, in the past, we've used that um, superhuman style product market fit survey. Like how disappointed would you be if you had to stop using Tuple? We definitely don't have a formal process for dealing with that feedback it's actually more that like i kind of like to just let it percolate through us so i want to make sure that all of us as co-founders see it um and like the support requests the, the specific feedback that comes in the reasons people cancel but i think at this stage we're small enough and there are a few there's there's little enough feedback that we can kind of just use our intuition and say 
wow, there's definitely a lot of people saying they really want X. We should think about building X. Um, and I think that's I think that's good enough, actually. I think that's enough f- for now. When a customer comes to you with a feature request, do you find that you usually have to push back at first? Um, sometimes, yes. Sometimes people will ask for a thing. And, and the thing I want to know is, like, why do you want that? As opposed to, like, tell me more about that that feature request. Because... We know what's easy and hard to add to the product and also kind of where we want to go. So sometimes we can get people 80% of what they want with not nearly as much work as the exact thing they asked for. So sometimes having that additional so information is, generally helps a the lot. Advice, so generally the advice in sort of the bootstrap, so generally the advice in sort of the bootstrap community is to stay away from enterprise because the long sales cycles and the long security applications and um, and kind of the headache that that can be. What has been your approach? Do you have a lot of enterprise companies using your product? We lost some deals early on because we were talking to people that were that had sort of this um, pretty in depth security audit process, and they'd be like, "Oh, do you have this certification?" And we'd be like, "No," and they'd be like, "What is your?" access control like what is your scheme for dealing with this and we were like uh we just uh deal with that i don't know so they were looking for kind of good templatey kind of answers to what in my mind were honestly kind of silly questions right but you know like we we sort of just weren't at the at the point where we like we wanted to play that game i feel like there's this kind of game you play with these bigger things where it's like uh yes we're gonna also pretend that the security audit uh is gonna make you safer and we have you know we're gonna spend the five hours of writing up answers to these questions and then like you will pretend that you read them and we just kind of in the beginning we're just kind of like you know what let's just not get customers that want this like let's just sign like there are enough people that want to just sign up and try the product uh, and trust that we're paying attention to security and doing the best we can there Um, and we don't need to mess around with this and so we we basically we participated in that process a couple times sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't Uh, and so for a while we eventually just said okay we're just gonna not go after these customers over time i built up a pretty good um security details page so i could just i kept working on kind of like a, a wiki um, and when i would get new questions i would add, add them on there and now sometimes people will send me a like hey like here's the security form can you fill this out and i'll just reply and say hey we wrote up a bunch of details on this um could you check through this and if you have any questions that aren't answered on there let me know and i'll add them to the doc and a lot of the times that actually just does it that does the trick so it's like it's kind of more like we just want to make sure you're thinking about this and paying attention, and we want to know some basics. And if you can fill out this long, you know, PDF right, or whatever right. they sent you, but I, I, a lot of times you can kind of judo that a little I bit and just be like, but what situation if I didn't? where what an enterprise company came to me and wanted to use my product, and they sent me this 95 question application, and and it's like it's just me working on this thing. I I don't have time to to go through this process but obviously i wanted the the customer and so i just kind of pushed back a little bit and 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 they were like oh you know what we've got this shorter application uh that we used to use here you go and 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 it was like nice good job much more manageable well and and the thing is is and they said this this and the thing is they understand that if they want to use new technologies, then they need to be able to work with small startups and there's certain exceptions that they have to make. Like that's, that's yeah. Well, I think in general, things are more negotiable than people might guess. 
Like there's almost always a default answer to something. But a lot of the times, if you ask for something a little bit better, or a little bit easier, or try to negotiate a little bit, you can uh, get something slightly better for you. It's it's surprising to me how many times just asking once gets you know gets me something good. So, and, and I, I like there are people inside these processes. So like the big company, they're like, yeah. We have this big process. We know it's kind of annoying. It was decided by committee two years ago. Um, but I'm a human, and I get it. You're just one person. Here's the old form. Like that totally makes sense to me that that would happen because like often there are like reasonable people that are kind of forced to do the, to do this um, heavyweight process by default. But if you kind of push back on them, they're like, well, we can kind of maybe we can work if we do this instead. But you'll never know if you don't at least give it a shot. Absolutely. You you just you never know unless you ask. So you aren't publicly sharing revenue numbers. Not that much, but I can give you an idea. Yeah, I mean, so like basically, as of this month, uh, I have more or less replaced my old salary, or the, the three of us have. Man, that is that's awesome, and and it's only been like like has it even been a year? Uh, well, we we yeah no, <laughs> we launched we 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 launched in January, and it's it's just November now, so not quite. Like I I touched on, we we were fortunate enough too. Like the we had a couple lucky breaks as well in there, so some of it was was hard work and preparation and some of it was hey this this nice thing kind of broke our way yeah absolutely so then so then what's next are you looking at hiring anyone like a customer support rep or um yeah customer support is is definitely under control it's not too bad uh the the support burden is is pretty pretty reasonable um that said i would be i'd be kind of surprised if we didn't hire at all next year i could see it i could see it happening we're kind of at an interesting decision point there are kind of two big things that are are in my head as far as like things that would unlock the kind of next level of growth for us. One is uh, going multi-platform. So right now we run only on Mac OS, uh, but we get a lot of requests for Linux and also some for Windows. Surprisingly, way more Linux than Windows. Um, so, but that is you know a pretty big effort. Like it's supporting multiple platforms. Like. I, there's like a million Linux distros and then there's like a bunch of versions of Windows. And so it's like adding any one of those is substantial. Um, there's a decent chunk of the product that is written in Swift. So that would need to be written in a portable language. Um, we've been slowly moving more and more pieces into that more portable layer. So we're, we have our eye on this eventual goal. So we try to not like make it worse, but it's still a, a pretty big lift to even get a basic thing going. Uh, so to me, taking that on with the team of three that we have is maybe a little bit too much. So like adding, if we added one more developer to the team, then it, or maybe even two, it's like okay, now I could see. Okay, I think we probably have the bandwidth to to handle that. So that that's a big decision point. Uh, and then also, this one's not quite as big, but um, going some sort of freemium, I think actually makes a lot of sense for our product. Um, our product, since it's an app that connects two people, is kind of inherently viral, and we don't really lean into that very much. We actually don't make it easy for that to keep spreading. Um, like if someone with a paid tuple account can can pair with un, uh, as many free people as they want or people for free, but then those free people then can't go and pair with other people unless they're paid. So we're sort of like chopped off the virality at it, a very important point. Um, whereas if we had a freemium tier, we could just try to get the app distributed like crazy and, and let it kind of spread through the world. Um, both of those, in my mind, increased the amount of work and like kind of balls we would need to keep in the air and so but i also think they both 
are probably things we want to eventually do. Our initial vision for the company was kind of, oh, we want to create this sort of small, profitable business and like keep it really calm and really sane. And we still sort of have some of that mentality, I think. But also, the more we get into this, the more it feels like there's a pretty big opportunity in front of us. And if we played our cards right, I think we could have like a pretty substantial thing on our hands. Uh, it, it tempts us. And, and I, I definitely, all three of us, I think, kind of tend to be the type that dream of a bigger and better future. So it's like, okay, yeah, like in the beginning, it was just like, oh my God, if we can make 15K a month, then we can all pay our bills and it's going to be amazing. We'll be able to work on this as long as we want. And we, as soon as we like went past 15K, it was like, okay, we, now we want 20, now we want 25. And like, we just, it just keeps, you know, it just keeps raising. And also just like, what do we want to do? Do you want to kind of like kick back and go slow and like milk this thing and keep it kind of little or, or do we want to be a little bit more bold and, and we want to be a little bit more bold. So I think some of that might be in our future. So then what do you imagine Tuple to look like in, in say five years? Five years. So we, we actually kind of did this. Um, we said like, where might we be in three years? Like if we took our current revenue growth and extrapolated it and added some, some stuff and like what, and like what kind of structure might we have? How many employees, what might it might look like? And it was like, okay, it was, it was, you know, like we could maybe have 10 employees and like, you know, there could be a sales team and there could be a support team and a dev team. And like, there could be a lot of things going on here. That's, that's possible. That's one possible you're in future. Kind of this interesting situation. You're, you're kind of in this interesting spot compared to most startups in that you built Tuple to replace a product that was purchased and then phased out. Do you think that will make it harder for you to be willing to sell it in the future? Um, well, yes. I would say that in general, we're probably more reluctant to sell than the average team, partly because we attracted a lot of people being like, didn't it suck when that, that company got sold? And if we were like, guess what? So did we. That would be sort of, sort of lame. Um, so I can't promise it would never happen, uh, you know that would be an unreasonable thing to say. But I will say that at this point, we have no interest in that. Um, we are like, we, we didn't take any money. We own the whole company with three people. It's a wonderful thing to have full control and no one to answer to. And, and I like working on this. Like this is the most interesting thing I've ever done professionally. And so if I, if we sold it, sure, getting some money would be nice, but I also know myself well enough to know that like, I don't want to just sit around. So I would need to go find a new thing to work on. And I would probably want to do it with Spencer and Joel because they're awesome. And so it's like, well, we could start a new thing with the three of us, but like we also just have a thing that's already working. And like we might never find another thing that has been wor that works as well as this. Like it might just be that we kind of picked this right, the right idea at the right time, and had some some fortunate luck. I've seen people that just kind of never replicate their initial success. And so to me, I'd kind of rather ride this for a long time and, and see where we can take it. I could the only thing I could see making us want to sell would be if it got boring for some reason. Like I, I that, that's what, what keeps me going is like the, the novel, the, the novelty, the, the new learning, new things, the need to improve, the need to break over, uh, break through plateaus and things like that. Um, if it started to feel way too samey, like if we got stuck and couldn't grow it and it just like was there for years and we couldn't figure out how to do it and we, or, or something, um, I could see that then, the, then the likelihood would go up. But as long as we can kind of keep finding interesting new challenges, um, I see us doing this for a while. Right. I, I think that's an important distinction. This whole question of how much is enough has been circulating through the bootstrap community for a while. And ultimately, I think it comes down to that. It's like, personally, we have an enough number. Each of us individually 
has a certain amount that we need to be making so that we can have the life outside of work that we want. But ultimately, it's like human nature that we need to be challenged. There, there's something new that we need to discover, something new that we need to achieve. And at every phase of a company, there's there's a new challenge. So I, I think that's a that's a good place to wrap it up. Where can people go online to, to follow along with your journey? Um, best place is probably the podcast. If you're listening to this, you probably are a podcast person. So um, my pro- podcast is called The Art of Product. Uh, it's a weekly podcast. You might like that. Uh, if you want kind of more hot takey kind of things, uh, I do tweet a decent amount. Uh, I'm R00K on Twitter. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This was really great. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. All right. Have a good one. Take care.